Um, so I'm going to be talking about remembering the poor, but I just want to start, before I say anything else, with just a little bit of a precursor. Um, I don't like the expression, the poor. It makes it sound like there's an us and there's a them. Um, and actually, we all go diff through different times in life of having more and having less, and being in need and being helping those in need. So this is not an us and them talk. This is a, sometimes we find ourselves in that position, and we are privileged and blessed by the love of others. And sometimes we find ourselves in a position to help and love those around us. So just bear that in mind as I talk. Right. If I could get my first slide, please. Um, the one with the face on it. That one. Yep, that's my friend Aaron. Right, I know him from back when I lived in Australia. And back in 2012, Aaron appeared in Australia's biggest newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald. And he appeared in it because of something very unusual that he did. See, Aaron, he had been reading the Bible. And more specifically, he'd been reading Matthew 19. And in that passage, Jesus tells a rich young man to sell everything he had. Now, Aaron at the time worked in international development, worked for a charity called um, Global Concern. And he spent a lot of time with some of the world's poorest people, particularly children. Um, his area was, I think, West Africa. And he would spend several weeks, sometimes months, in, in the very poorest parts with very kind of malnourished people. And he knew firsthand because of this, the gulf there is between the world's richest and the world's poorest. He'd seen it and he felt it. And he said to me one day that he, he really felt it most when he'd been um, in West Africa, he'd been sleeping on a, a dirt floor, uh, trying to provide for heavily malnourished children. And then at the end of his uh, time there, the separate part of the country, he went off and spent a load of money bungee jumping. And afterwards, what should have been a great adrenaline rush and everything, he said he just felt just this emptiness and this sense of kind of guilt, really, of spending all that money when he knows what that could have done for the people he'd been spending time with. Now, in Western standards, Aaron was not particularly rich. He added up all his, uh, the value of all his possessions, and it came to roughly $20,000, which is about 10,000 pounds. He didn't own a flat or a car. He had a motorbike at the time. And so, yeah, he added it all up, about 10,000 pounds, which for all your possessions might sound like a lot, but isn't, isn't loads by Western standards. But he then went on the internet. He typed in, how rich am I? Which anyone can do in this room. Don't do it now. Um, and you can see, based upon how much you own, how much you earn, where you sit in the global kind of rich list. And with 10,000 pounds, $20,000, he was in the richest 7% in the world, which... Um, he found pretty confronting. So, realizing he was a comparatively rich young man, Aaron decided to take Jesus' challenge and literally sell all that he had. He lived in a flat share on the outskirts of Sydney, a place called Cronulla, and for about three days, he opened up his flat as an auction, and anyone could come in, buy anything, and I'm talking anything, like his mattress, his bed sheets, his old school medals, the watch his father gave him, his motorbike, his CDs, back when they were a thing, um, literally everything he had. And anything that didn't go, he gave to charity shops. All he was left with 
was the clothes he was standing up in. And he said the experience really changed him. It made him realize quite how much he kind of coveted and held on to things he had, how much he loved them. But he, out of the back of it, he felt freer. And he hopes that he helped some of the world's poorest people. And I find this incredibly inspiring, but I also find it incredibly challenging. And if I was to hazard a guess, I reckon there's probably other people in this room who would feel the same. And the reason I think that is because for it to hit the Sydney Morning Herald, it's got to be unusual. It's got to be, there's got to be something in there. And I think that unusualness, if that's a word, is the challenge and the inspiration of what Aaron did. But what Jesus says and what Aaron did challenges me about how much I want to hold on to what I have and how much money, time, expertise, compassion I'm really giving to those less fortunate than me, the poor, those in need. But the idea of remembering the poor is absolutely central to the Christian faith. You know, saying that God has favorites is not very popular and probably theologically not that sound. But when you read scripture, it certainly seems like he has a heart, a special place for the poor and those in need. There is so much in the Bible. And some of the teaching about it is really quite confronting. Even John Wimber, who started this family of churches called the Vineyard, had some pretty stark things to say about this. He said, one of the quotes he said about um, remembering the poor was that many Christians and Christian leaders have been neutralized by the love of money and materialism. The homage paid to affluence becomes a burden that saps our energy as well as our love for God and other people. Through repentance and the cleansing of forgiveness, we can rid ourselves of this burden and begin to, let, begin to let God transform our lives. Like Jesus and Paul, we can learn to be content with what we have living modestly in order that we may, we, may, we may give liberally to the work of the kingdom and to meet the needs of others. Now, I never met John Wimber, but from what I've read, he really lived that. I'm told that he used to carry groceries, bags of groceries in the boot of his car that he would then give away to anyone he saw in need. It's kind of simple genius to me. It's not that hard to do. Actually, yeah. It, it will bless a lot of people. Similar, I guess, in terms of what we're doing with Food Bank. So, where does this phrase come from, this expression, remember the poor? Can you turn, if you have a Bible or an app on your phone or some ability to read Scripture, to Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10? Now it says, as for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the non-Jewish people, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the non-Jews. James, Peter, and John, some of Jesus' original disciples, 
those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I've been eager to do all along. Now the background to this passage is that um, Paul had persecuted Jews, Jews, uh, Christians for several years. He was probably there, if you know your Bible, when Stephen was being stoned. Um, he was a pretty vicious guy. And then on the Damascus Road, he had an experience where the Holy Spirit came down, blinded him, Jesus spoke to him, and from that point onwards, he, he turned around and he changed his whole focus, his whole direction of life to bring the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. And then, so he spent about 14, 15 years before this was written, learning how to do this, learning who Jesus was. He never met Jesus when he was alive. Um, learning who Jesus was, learning from others. And then after this sort of 14, 15 years, he was sent out. And it looks like him and Peter were probably quite alpha, quite confrontational people, and they would clash. But at this point, Peter and James and John and uh, Paul and Barnabas, they came together and they were sent separate ways, some to the Jews, some to the Gentiles. And at the, in this specific moment, on the sending out of Paul and Barnabas, the one thing they asked was that they would, that they would remember the poor. And that's because of how important it was to Jesus and how important it is throughout Scripture. And in a minute, I'm going to look at what the Old and New Testament says about this. I'm going to do a bit of a whistle-stop tour. Um, but before I do that, I want to highlight one thing. Um, in preparation for this, I've listened to various talks, I've read a lot of stuff, and it's quite easy to just do a big guilt trip. And I don't think that gets us very far. Probably motivates for about 10 minutes. So I'm not going to do that. Some of the passages are confronting. I think the motivation cannot be guilt with this stuff. It has to come from the love of God, the love he has first shown us when we weren't worthy of it. We're never really worthy of it. But he shows it to us anyway. It has to be motivated from the love we have first been shown. Right. Let's look at the Bible. So, as I said, there are passages that I can't really avoid when I talk about this. They're a bit confronting. So we're going to look at them. So buckle your seatbelts, hold on to your hats. We're going to do a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the Old and then the New Testament on this topic. Right. So we have very early on, we've got Genesis chapter 2. God creates Adam. And early on, he realizes that for Adam's, I'm putting words in here, but mental health maybe, he needs a partner. He needs someone there. So he creates Eve. He says man should not be alone. So he creates a woman. Together is better than alone. So he looks after him very early on. And then we see, skip a few verses, and we see Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. They realize they're naked, they're ashamed, they're cold. God sees this. No matter how angry God is in that moment, he gives them animal skins to hide their shame and to uh, keep them warm. He meets their spiritual need through being there. He meets their physical need through the animal skins and their mental, their emotional need through um, 
covering them and giving them each other. And then we move a little bit further forward and we see the, the laws that uh, God gives to Moses, amongst which are two that Jesus says the rest of the laws hang over, hang on. In Deuteronomy 6.5, we're told that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then in Leviticus 19.18, we're told to not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the flow. When we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, we cannot help but love those around us. And then staying in the first five books of the Bible, what some call the Pentateuch, the kind of foundations of this faith, we see in Exodus 23, God told his people not to harvest the edges of their fields so that the poor and the strangers could help themselves. And then, again in Deuteronomy, I know this is fast, this is whistle-stop, um, but we'll keep going. In Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 7 to 11, um, it says, if anyone among you is poor, this is God talking, again, giving um, laws. If anyone among you is poor, if any one of your fellow Israelites in any towns of the land the Lord is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor in the land, therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. God is teaching his people to love one another, not to hold things too tightly, but to make sure everyone has what they need. Now these laws, these directions in the first five books of the Bible, they seem pretty clear about how we should live. There's all sorts in there, but there's a heavy emphasis on the poor. But the problem is, if you look at the Old Testament, what happens is the Israelites get these laws and then they kind of move away from them. They stop worshipping and they start oppressing the poor and then um, prophets are sent in to tell them, no, you've got to correct yourselves, come back to God and stop oppressing the poor. And it gets, um, it gets pretty strong in there when you look at this. Amos and Isaiah particularly have some strong, God says some strong stuff through them. Amos 2 um, says, For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane, profane my holy name. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, your worship. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. And then in Isaiah... This is Isaiah 58, 1 to 9. God speaks through Isaiah in a similar way. He says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why? We have fasted. Have you not seen it? 
Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and you strike each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast, bless you, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then the light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Through Amos and Isaiah, God is saying that it's no good fasting and worshiping and then at the same time, simultaneously, forgetting the poor and those in need. And Jesus picks, up, picks right up on this at the beginning of his ministry. Right at the start, he has this principle of remembering the poor and those in need. He sets out his whole mission by quoting that same prophet Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to, the capti- freedom to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed, set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, right at the start, Jesus states that he's been chosen and appointed to bring good news to the poor and the needy. And Jesus himself was born into poverty. He came from a town called Nazareth, which was very, a very poor town. Certainly not the sort of place you'd expect a king to come from. Now, bear with me just um, for a moment. Maybe close your eyes and imagine a really uh, run-down town or area that you might know of. Maybe there's graffiti over all the walls. Maybe there's lots of boarded-up buildings. Maybe some of the buildings are crumbling. Maybe people are scared to go out in this neighborhood. That's what people thought of Nazareth. That's where Jesus came from. Now in those days, when Jesus was born, when a child was born, parents gave sacrificial offerings at the temple. By the way, you can open your eyes if you're still in that place. Um, Rich and middle-class parents would have uh, brought a lamb as the sacrifice. If you were poor, you'd bring a pigeon or a dove. Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, brought a pigeon or a dove. Again, kind of showing that they come from a place of poverty. And then when Jesus grew up, when he was ministering through his kind of main three years, he was mostly homeless. You know, he, rather than riding into Jerusalem towards the end of his life on this earth, He could have summoned an amazing horse or got one of his 
um, disciples to get one, but no, he rode in on a donkey. Again, a sign of poverty, and he came to minister to those in need, the poor. You know, he spent a lot of time and focus on the poor, the oppressed, the outcast, and the needy. We see Jesus healing a paralyzed beggar by the pool of Bethsaida. He healed 10 lepers. Only one came back to say thank you. We see him bringing love and kindness to prostitutes and tax collectors who were the outcasts of the time. He fed a massive crowd of people who were hungry and tired. He gave a group of tired and desperate fishermen a huge haul of fish. He healed a woman whose society saw as unclean and he released people from demonic oppression. Jesus saw people. He saw the person in front of him. I mean, he really saw them and he saw the need right there. He saw the deepest need. And he often, first of all, met the most obvious one, whether that be food, whether that be healing, whether that be um, release from oppression. He did that before, often before he spoke to their spiritual need. And this was absolutely regardless of whether they deserved it or were thankful. And that's a really key thing. Quite a controversial thing Jesus said was that we must love our enemies, even the ungrateful and the wicked. Is there a slide? Luke 6? That's the one. Um, Because God loves the ungrateful and the wicked, we must mirror that. I don't know about you, but the ungrateful and the wicked aren't at the top of my list of people to love. If I think about the wicked, some of the uh, people who've done some of the worst things out there and now in prison, they're not off my list. But I also really struggle with the ungrateful. I don't know about you, but if I'm at a junction, I let someone out and they don't say thank you, that really gets me. (laughs) Or I open a door and someone doesn't. I confess, that really annoys me. (laughs) Um, It's ungrateful. And I hear this debate sometimes about who is deserving of our love. If someone is ungrateful and brings poverty upon themselves, maybe through gambling or drink or drugs, crime, should they receive our care and our kindness? I mean, do do they really deserve it by comparison to someone who's just had a lot of bad luck? And I get that. I kind of get that argument. But I think we have to think, when we go down that road, we have to think about what God has first done for us. The Bible tells us that when we were his enemies, biblical word, dead in our sin, he came and did everything for us. Utterly unable to save ourselves, but he gave us a hope that can never fade or be taken away. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, when we turn to him, when we put our faith in him, we are made righteous. We are put back in right relationship with God. Something we could never have done ourselves. And instead of death, we are given the hope of salvation. Eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth where our tears will be wiped away and there will be no more suffering. When we fully take on board our own sin and all that Jesus has done for us, the price he has paid despite our unworthiness, 
when we really engage with this, loving those around us, whether or not they deserve it, becomes a natural overflow. When we realize our own unworthiness and the love and love God with all our heart, mind and soul, loving our neighbors as ourselves becomes a joy in my experience. Now, if you've been recently on an alpha course, if we get the next slide, you might have seen this guy, Shane, on there. He appears on one of the week videos. The alpha course, by the way, is uh, a course, an introduction to Christianity. Now, um, Shane was what some might describe as wicked. He uh, got put in prison for multiple stabbings, uh, burglaries, uh, stabbed someone through the head, they survived. Um, he was a bad guy. And he talks about this, and he talks about, during that time, this uncontrollable rage inside of him that drove him to the point where he really didn't care what happened to those he hurt or himself, and wound up in isolation in jail. But everything for him started to change when someone came to his prison and ran an Alpha course. During this Alpha course, he put his faith in Jesus, and then he went on to run several Alpha courses in prison after he was released. Oh, sorry, during that time and since he's been released. And now that he's out, he um, helps others to stop offending. And he goes, as I said, back into prisons. And I love this story because it, the change begins when someone decided to remember the poor and the wicked and the ungrateful. They reached out to Shane when he had nothing. He was struggling mentally and was outcast from society. He was at the epitome of what some might call wicked. But because a person reached out and ran Alpha, Shane encountered Jesus and everything changed. Psalm 113 tells us that God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to seat them with princes. Now, before I finish, I want to talk about how we try and remember the poor at South West London Vineyard. Now, I've been in the church about four years, and in that time, it's become really clear to me that remembering the poor is critical. It's at the heart of what happens here at this church. In my time, there have been all sorts of initiatives and activities. Prayer on the streets, Christmas parcels being put together for kids who may not receive uh, hardly any presents, boxes of food delivered through lockdowns, job club, playgroup, grow baby, food bank, just to name a few. I'm sorry if I've missed one that you've been involved in. And at the moment, I love what I'm seeing up at the yard, which is our community center just up the road. I see people coming in, struggling because of a really difficult set of circumstances. I see our amazing teams loving them and helping them with food and jobs and forms and baby equipment and prayer and friendship. I see people finding community and opening the Bible for the first time. And I see a few beginning to work with the Lord. You know, one of our, we, we run a thing on a Tuesday uh, between one and two called Exploring Faith, where we often watch a bit of a program called The Chosen, then we open the Bible and, and look at that together at what we've seen. And this particular session, there are about seven or eight people there, I think. Some had first come to the yard because of food bank or job club. Uh, some had come for the tea and toast mornings where we just all have tea and toast together. Um, 
people have found it in different ways. And some people who were there, you could say, brought some of their problems on themselves, perhaps. Others through just really bad luck. But one way or another, after people's initial needs have been met, they found themselves in this session of exploring faith. And in this particular afternoon, to me, in my opinion, it was a beautiful, it was, it was a beautiful scene. One guy had fallen asleep and was snoring really loudly. Some people were really engaged. One guy told me the Bible is absolute nonsense. Some people there were navigating the Bible for the first time, being helped by the likes of Claudine and Kyle, Josh and Helen, to find books like Exodus and Luke, trying to work out the verses and the chapters and beautiful seeing people open the Bible for the first time. And it might sound chaotic, and it kind of was, but it is a beautiful chaos. The gentleness and the care of the team and the people slowly pivoting towards Jesus. It was a stunning scene. The flow of loving God to loving our neighbor to seeing our neighbor beginning to know God is beautiful. You know, when we love the poor and serve those in need, it should never be conditional on people turning to Jesus, but instead driven by love and a hope that they might encounter Jesus. I hope that they will encounter the deep love of Christ for themselves, that they will move out of a place of poverty, and that ultimately their future will move, their eternal future will move from death to life. You know, when we remember the poor and we see lives beginning to change, we are seeing glimpses of God's kingdom coming to earth.